As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Cause this is my road you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM, your home for community radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone, and good morning, Harry, to you, that voice you hear, and it kind of uplifts my spirit to hear that melodious voice from Harry, our station manager, WNHH 103.5 FM. And this this morning's show, uh, some folks may perceive it to be rep- repetitive in that we've done, done a few shows on autism, but... I'll do a show every day, every week on autism in terms of just uh, we want everybody on the planet to be healthy and wise and and uh, uh, be able to kind of bear their 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 passions and express themselves in, in, in a free way. So uh, today we, there's something called autism and we, you've heard that word, uh, but there might be other disabilities that science might discover. But but today science might, is also kind of directed to solving these issues and uh Making sure that we are, if not making sure, striving fervently to to uh, to to ensure a better, a, a, a healthy life and a healthy sojourn for for all of us. So each April, uh, you may or may not know, uh, individuals and, and organizations really around the globe celebrate World Autism Month, and it's really a means to raise awareness of develop what what people call developmental disorders. But quite frankly, uh, Dr. Uh, Sue I'm I'm thinking that a lot of us have developmental disorders undiagnosed, but but that's but that's another that's another show, uh, and and neurodivergence. Uh, organizations like Autism Speaks use this time to uh, to really encourage communities to stand together and to make a, a world of difference. And that's not just a metaphor; it really is a, a, an operating principle, so that all people with autism can reach their reach their full potential. Uh, th- this morning, as I mentioned, Dr. Dennis. Uh, Sue Adolski is with us, and he's he um, would join this week's show and share how his his lab and people say, well, what is is a, is a lab like a guinea pig? No, this is an innovative developmental research creative enterprise, and I, I hate the term lab; it kind of denigrates the, really the the, the 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 content and and the sincerity of what's taking place there. But but his uh, let's let's say his his uh, his, his creative think tank uh, right here at Yale is working to help teenagers with autism, build emotional resilience, to help teenagers with autism build emotional resilience. Uh, so as I mentioned, our guests are Dennis uh, Dr. and he's a professor at Yale School of Medicine, Yale Child Study Center, and he's joined by, by Julia Zong. Folks forget that uh, you may have professors uh, and associate professors, but there are graduate students that are really so key to kind of making, making the, Building success and and helping out and and so Dr. Uh, not Dr. Yet but Julia Song she's a postgraduate associate at the Yale School of Medicine and Yale Child Study Center and we're joined by Reverend Dr. Leroy, Leroy O. Perry uh, kind of a comrade in arms pastor of Saint Saint Stephen's Amy Zion Church and uh, cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program you've heard me mention this term Yale Clinical Research Program before and it's so and also cultural ambassador. But it really kind of brings together that uh, innovations and creativity and science, scientific discoveries 
are to be shared and, and how do we kind of also help and, and manifest this collective enterprise? So, so the cultural ambassadors to the Yale Clinical Research Program helped do that. And it's been, and they've been doing it successfully for more than a year. And lastly, uh, Reverend Elvin Clayton, Reverend, more than 10 years, I should say. Uh, Reverend Elvin Clayton is a pastor of Walters Memorial Amy Zion Church and also a cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Uh, everyone, let's kind of jump in. And, and as I say, we've done a few shows in this regard, but we're going to talk today about uh, specifically ways to support adolescents with autism. Dr. Sodolsky and Julia, welcome. And you know, tell, um, tell our listeners about the work you, you do in your in your creative enterprise, I'm going to use that word now. You you can you can you can use it for moving forward uh, at the Yale Child Study Center. And how did each of you um, how did each, each of you become become interested in this work? Thank you so much for having us. Um, it's a pleasure. And um, uh, my interest started uh, from uh, working with parents. And um, uh, I came to Yale as a postdoctoral uh, fellow myself, so that uh, my job was to uh, work with uh, families uh, of children on the autism spectrum, and mostly working with parents, helping parents um, um, uh, navigate situations where their children might become frustrated or upset. And um, at that point, we're working with younger children. Mm -hmm. And uh, little by little, I realized that um, by uh, uh, inviting children themselves to the table, we can accomplish so much more. So that mm -hmm. uh, that's really started my uh, uh, research and clinical research and work with uh, school age children and uh, teenagers, where in addition to inviting the whole family, in addition to inviting schools, we have a targeted emphasis uh, on uh, uh, working with children and uh, uh, helping children recognize situations that might, might make them um, stressed out or mm -hmm. upset or anxious mm -hmm. and building skills uh, that I guess we're all develop uh, one way or another. <laughs> but mm -hmm. if you have a developmental disabilities, these skills don't come naturally. So thinking mm -hmm. about how to help children and teenagers uh, learn the skills that they uh, are somehow not learning naturally from their environment. Excellent, excellent. And Julia, welcome to you as well. So share a little bit with us as well about your, 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 your what's, what's, what's motivating you and making you get up each morning with a sense of optimism. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I guess I kind of started in this line of work in my undergraduate career at Emory University. I was working in a neuroscience lab that did neuroimaging with infants with autism. And then I kind of realized where my passions lie are working in person with kids. And so I wanted more experience with that. And then another part, uh, another part Thing that I'm really passionate about is health disparities, specifically racial disparities and mental health. And so um, being, I got to come to work at Yale with Dr. Sumidolsky and one of the best parts of this, of working here has been like working in person and really mm. getting to know the families um, and the kids that are coming in. And I've loved working and hanging out with the teenagers that come into our, mm. into our space um, and I'm excited to hopefully keep doing that um, in graduate school and combining that with my passion for um, working on culturally informed therapy as well as racial disparity, mental health research. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Look, we're gonna take the deep dive uh, 
in, in about 10 or 15 minutes so in, in terms of the your creative enterprise and your laboratory and your discoveries and your really collaboration with the community but but dr sodolsky just to kind of give us a little feel for someone that might be you know might be somewhat unfamiliar what are some of the some of the core symptoms uh, associated with the features of we hear this term autism spectrum disorder the asd just uh it's a very broad spectrum, and the core symptoms involve uh, uh, social and communication difficulties, particular difficulties in uh, understanding social context or social emotional context and difficulty uh, regulating one's behavior in, in response to social and nuanced situations. And uh, the second core symptom uh, is um, Restricted repetitive behavior. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but this refers to overly focused interests that might be developmentally inappropriate. So, for example, a child might be interested in dinosaurs, but uh, when a teenager is interested in dinosaurs and wants to carry on the conversation about dinosaurs with their peers, that could be developmentally odd. So, mm -hmm. that interests that are really deeply held, but not really uh, productive or helpful to this person in terms of either accomplishing professional goals or uh, fitting in socially. Mm. And the combination of these uh, uh, symptoms can vary in terms of their impact on the person's life. So we mm. all have um, um, sort of uh, uh, odd social um, sort of uh, experiences. And uh, many of us have uh, interests that are not shared by others. But the question is whether or not those symptoms interfere with a person's life and well-being. So mm. that oftentimes the symptoms le lead to emotional distress, right? So that's mm. where we draw the line between um, uh, normal and psychopathology, right? So when a person is suffering, right? So that's where we want to step in and alleviate the suffering. Or when a person's um, life is derailed because of the symptoms. Mm. So that uh, these are the reasons why uh, social emotional difficulties and restricted repetitive behaviors are considered symptoms of a mental health disorder because they interfere with subjective well-being and quality of life. Mm. That, that's, you know, we, we've done some shows, but just as I heard you just explain so, so cogently about the the, the emotional part and that, and that the person is, is actually hurting and, and hadn't really heard that so clearly uh, yeah. as, as, you, as, you, as you've just expressed it. What is the, which, which causes me to ask in terms of the, the prevalence of, of the, 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 the spectrum, I've heard people give various definitions, but um, what is generally, would you say that the prevalence of autism spectrum disorders? And, and the prevalence rates uh, have been rising with, I think, uh, the most recent report uh, uh, having something like, um, uh, I wrote it down here so that I'm not mistaken, uh, something like, um, uh, uh, something like uh, one child per 36 children, right? Mm. So one per 36. And uh, this is certainly an increase um, uh, from uh, 50 years ago uh, when autism was considered to be a rare disorder. Mm. Uh, so uh, the reason for this increase is probably better recognition, uh, better diagnostic accuracy, and also um, a recognition of cases uh, that are milder and mm -hmm. uh, something that probably wouldn't be considered a case back in the day. 
And, and Julia, when you hear Dr. Sodolsky talk about the prevalence, what does that say to you? Because you're, you're reasonably new in the field. Uh, is, it, is it like an ominous challenge? Is it a, 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 something that you, you're willingly embraced? Does it, does it, does it kind of just, uh, to, to use the expression, depress you to know about these increasing numbers? No, I don't think so, because I feel like um, as we progress throughout the world, um, neurodivergence acceptance is uh, and neurodiversity is, I think, really important. And so to embrace people who may not necessarily fit into neurotyp like neurotypical norms is really mm -hmm. important. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like with um, new people in the field, um, also like and working on um, interventions that don't treat autism necessarily, um, because there is not not really a cure for autism. It's not something that should be fixed within someone. Um, and accepting someone's differences and that neurodiversity, I think, um, is super important. And so, I think with rising prevalence rates, that's not really. Hopefully, it's making people more mindful of. Mm. accepting other people's differences and accepting neurodiverse individuals um, mm. instead of making them conform to the norms of our society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and Reverend Clayton and Reverend Perry, just before I come to you, I wanted to, to ask both Julia and, and Dr. Sodolsky the, um, the current methods, because it seems to me that if we do this show a year from now and, and I ask the same question, there may even be different methods, but what are the, the, the current methods or projected methods that you that you think that, that one can use to screen for autism? Can we, in 10 years, will we take a pill and we'll diagnose or, or blood kind of <laughs> let us know, but what, what are some of the current methods used to use the screen? I'm sure some of our listeners would be interested in that. Well, now uh, diagnosis is uh, based on uh, uh, an interview with a parent and on uh, expert evaluation by a uh, child psychiatrist or child psychologist uh, who are experts in recognizing the symptoms in uh, children of certain ages. And uh, the earliest uh, autism can be diagnosed is probably in the uh, second year of life uh, based oh, on developmental delays and uh, lack of social reciprocity in um, uh, children's interaction with uh, uh, their caregivers and during the second and third year of life, uh, lack of interest in peers. So mm. early diagnosis is really important for early intervention because this can set a stage uh, for uh, uh, catching up and, and learning those uh, important social skills. But a, a lot of data that we see is based, for example, uh, the latest prevalence uh, numbers are based on uh, documented diagnosis at, uh, 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 at the age of eight years, uh, mm -hmm. either in uh, uh, medical record or in um, uh, educational classification. So mm -hmm. that um, uh, this um, uh, diagnosis can be arrived uh, via kind of like more nuanced assessments that include psychological testing, uh, observation, and uh, careful evaluation of uh, developmental changes or lack mm -hmm. of developmental changes so that by the age of eight, this diagnosis could be uh, quite accurate. Mm. 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 Just, just the, the, the impact of parenting kind of comes 
jumps into my mind, but, uh, but before I go there, but Reverend Clayton and Reverend Perry, let's kind of weave you in and good morning, gentlemen, good to see, good to see both of you. I, uh, again, I know both of you uh, have, have experience and know people closely uh, in e either in your church or your network or just your, uh, even in your extended family that are dealing with this issue. And I guess wonder whether, um, oh, we've talked about children receiving the, de the developmental screening, but why is it, why is it important for, for the ambassadors to, to be involved in campaigns and, and research uh, such as this, because we see the, the issues on the, on the Black community, et cetera. But I'm just curious your thoughts, Reverend Clayton and, and Reverend, uh, Reverend Perry, in this regard. Well, good morning, Tom. Good morning. It, it, it is important for the ambassadors to be involved in autism awareness uh, because uh, if people are not aware uh, of autism, you, you, or you will never understand autism. Hmm. So, so the awareness will help us to understand what, what's going on in this area. And one thing that we should understand that autism is not an illness, it's not a disease, it's not like cancer, heart disease, or asthma. So, mm -hmm. so, and as the doctor just said earlier, that um, they, they diagnose these kids as early as two years old to, to, yeah. to, to try to help them get the skills. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and once you have autism, you have it for the rest of your life. It, it's not one of these things that you hear people say, <coughs> Oh, yeah, he'll outgrow it or she'll outgrow it. That's not the case with this, from, from my understanding. So, so it's important that we keep this before uh, the public, mm -hmm. that, that more people will understand uh, uh, that these young people and, and as they get older, uh, they're, they're regular people. But they they have a something a, con, a medical condition that they that there's no cure for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, and we have mm -hmm. to be conscious of the difference. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Reverend Perry, good morning. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, everyone. Um, I think that 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 the relevance of this project is self-evident in the fact that between education and accessibility, there are a number of persons in our community and the underrepresented community who will not have the advantage financially or socially or this accessibility to be a part of a study that would help. Um, help the young people who may have autism spectrum and who may have these violent attacks, who may be marginalized in their classrooms, who may be scrutinized as mentally ill or unsociable because there's no one taking the time or opening up the door for this kind of research, which I think is valuable to mm -hmm. where we're going in, in, in trying to um, work with this as, as an issue in our community. So, I mean, I applaud the whole project and the program. I just wish and hope that, you know, this program will bring about a greater exposure to our audience mm -hmm. and to members. I mean, you have to, you have to know that, you know, we, 
me medicine has, has always been very suspicious in our community. And, and the labeling within medicine has, has even given it even a more negative um, mm -hmm. connotation. So the education part that we're doing as ambassadors and what we're doing with this show is monumental. And I'm hoping that we can do more shows, that we can increase the literature, um, the flyers, the information, that we can put them in our churches, give them to our partners, organizations like the NAACP, mm -hmm. the Big. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has to be bigger than just, yes. you know, where we are right now, yes. if we are really to make a dent in what we're trying to do. And we're going to spend maybe the next 20 minutes or so, uh, Dr. Sudowski and Julia talking about your your current study, because you are recruiting for folks, as Reverend Perry just mentioned, to ex kind of expand the participation. But but before we do, I guess um, Reverend Clayton had mentioned about outgrowing autism. Um, would you care, care to comment on that? Is that a possibility, or is it just kind of a person adapting to his or her growth? I mean, people grow, but when you hear you hear do you do hear this claim that can that people can young people can outgrow autism? Is that true, or is it just a, a modified statement? Well, I, I think technically somebody cannot can meet criteria for autism spectrum disorder when they're younger and then not meet this criteria when, when they're older. I, I think that the important question is uh, what happens to this older person? Are, are they happy? Do they now meet criteria for a different disorder or do mm -hmm. they live a productive life and uh, uh, kind of free uh, from mental health symptoms in general? So I, I, I think the, the optimistic number is about 10% of children who meet criteria for autism, when they grow up, they, they, they live a happy life and, and don't meet criteria for autism or other disorders. So that uh, this is where we're at now. Uh, is it good or bad? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think we have ways to go. Uh, to, yeah. Yes, indeed. indeed. Tom, Tom, can I just make a comment Please. here? Yes, sir. Uh, one, one of the issues that I think is uh, the elephant in the room always is people's comfort level when it comes to, to being a part of studies like this. For example, if I went into a study like this and I saw somebody who looked like Uncle Joe or Aunt Jane, and maybe I would feel more comfortable in trying to talk to them about what's going on rather than going to a room where I have someone who is dispassionate or may have some implied biases who I feel uncomfortable with, I think that that uh, may cause uh, some people to turn away from a study like this. Now, Julie, you have a wonderful personality. I think I could handle it for a couple of hours. <laughs> but maybe explain it to them the process of how um, the interview goes. So, you know, are they... The whole family is invited, uh, just the particular care, caregivers. Um, is, it a, is it very informal? I mean, are they made comfortable? Um, those are the kind of things that, you know, when we recommend people to study, we need to know so that we don't have to hear the feedback that, oh, man, I went there and they, they treated me like I was a second-class citizen or that uh, I was uh, a subject in the study rather than a participant. So I think that's important to, to know and for people to know. Yeah. So uh, th thank you uh, for uh, bringing on this uh, topic. So we're looking for teenagers who have autism and who tend to overreact to stress and frustration. So this is potentially a stigmatizing 
luster of mm. syntax. Mm. And, and we are very um, careful uh, uh, about uh, the topic uh, that, that we study because on one hand, this could be very impairing and uh, very upsetting to teenagers and their families. But families might be unwilling to kind of take their uh, child uh, to, to a program that looks into like anger management difficulties so that we, we think long and hard uh, about uh, uh, the uh, type of uh, symptoms and, and the language that we use. In, in my view, uh, this goes to the heart of autism and uh, uh, the challenges with emotional experience and emotion regulation. And uh, this is the um, uh, characteristic that, that we all have. We all get upset and we all get frustrated and we learn how to communicate about this to our mm. family members, to our loved ones. Uh, we are more likely to get angry with our family members than with a stranger in a supermarket. But, but mm. I think point is mm. make it harder for individuals to naturally acquire the skills. And emotional reactions can be misplaced or a child might miscommunicate about their experiences in a way that will place them at risk mm. of really negative outcomes such as high-risk behaviors where a child might run in, into like a busy intersection because they don't want to go to the clinic, right? Mm. Or the child might make a verbal statement that can be misconstrued as a threat in school. Or, of course, children might become physical with their family members so, uh, in, in school, and uh, th this could be uh, considered a high-risk, dangerous behavior. Uh, so, so that we actually see uh, an, a number of kids who are uninvited from educational settings or uninvited from summer mm. camps mm. or kids uh, who are loving and caring uh, sons and daughters, but who do not um, have the language to communicate about their frustrations. So they can uh, throw something, they can push someone when they're upset or frustrated. And uh, the important part here is that these skills can be taught. And that's what we want to do in our study so that we can reduce the risk of those uh, situations where children are uh, frustrated, upset, or miscommunication about their frustration. I was wondering, um, th there have these, uh, these young, these teenagers who at, at times will undress in public and, and act inappropriately. And, and would this program help a child like this? Uh, I know like down here in Bridgeport, um, there was a, a young man that had a little difficulty and um, the police were called in and they had a wonderful program they, they came in with, with maybe four or five police officers and, and um, with a clinician and a social worker. And they handled it in a way that was very, very appropriate. Uh, but, the, but the kid still has the problem. Yeah. So, so what I'm, uh, do you think that this program, 
that you have could help a child or children like this? Yeah, I, I have to be careful not to oversell what, what we can do. So we, <laughs> we will definitely try. We, we do not turn down families um, uh, if we think that uh, they have a chance of benefit, but this is not a 100% chance, right? And this is why we have to continue to do research so that what, what we can do is we can come up with a focused and nuanced plan. And over the course of several weeks to several months, see if this plan can help a child uh, to uh, get this behavior under control. And this is not just the child, as you mentioned, this has to mm. be the community, this has to be the family where everybody needs to be on board. And at the very least, like sometimes this behavior, well, not just this, but sometimes behavior doesn't change. And uh, th there are times where a child needs to have a card on themselves saying, mm. I'm a person with a disability. Please forgive my behavioral difficulties, right? Mm. So that community needs to recognize that uh, wow. disabilities are not always able uh, to navigate certain situations. Uh, and, and unfortunate behaviors do take place. Yeah, I wanted to... I wanted to... Oh, hey, okay. You know, in education, when I was in education, we used to have a program called PET, where, mm -hmm. where you would give certain messages rather than, so your ways of responding or reacting to an individual was different. And I'm wondering in this program, will the parents be um, given some training maybe or some help because they're the first responders. <laughs> mm -hmm. They're the ones that you know you wake up with, you have breakfast with, you have dinner and lunch. And if they have not some kind of least um, peripheral training, I think it, 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 it might hinder the, the whole total effort. Like you said, it's, it's not just Yale Child Care Center and the individual, it's the community, it's the family, it's the parents, it's the people who are close by. And sometimes I don't think they know. I mean, they don't. They haven't spent years in academia learning how. They just go by gut. But I. But there are better ways, and I think that perhaps one of the things that we that that your study might do is look at that as uh, as part of the healing process or the helping process. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so in our work, we uh, consider our uh, approach comprehensive. Therapy, so that we work with parents, we work with uh, the child, we reach out to the schools, and sometimes those are moving parts and moving pieces. So that uh, if children are less able uh, to do a 45 minute psychotherapy session, we will front load the treatment with working with, with the families. And some parents are experts already. So they know more about autism by virtue of having a child with autism than anything that we can teach. But sometimes um, uh, there are patterns or there are habits that uh, are hard to see uh, from the inside. And if we can offer something new or something different, uh, this could be uh, quite helpful. And um, uh, specifically, uh, 
our behavior is often motivated by emotions. And it is helpful for parents to have the tools uh, to help their children stay a little bit more even keeled in mm. frustrating situations. Mm. Because a, a child can be uh, in a different state of mind. They can be bored. They can be uh, exhausted from a long day at school. Uh, they can be thirsty, right? Mm. Like dehydrated. Mm. And the child with autism might not have the skills to communicate about that, right? So that parents might need to infer the mental state of their child from the situation, from the environment, from the daily routine. And we help parents break down uh, those uh, elements of the situations Excellent. into the pieces that can provide additional information. So Excellent. that, let's say, as a parent, if I know that my kid will get frustrated on a long car ride, right? So I need to plan ahead for them. Or if I know that after a long day at school, my kid will be hungry and cranky, right? So I, I need to plan for that. And th this planning uh, might prevent behavioral difficulties that are more likely to occur when the child is in a state of mind when they are likely to be more easily frustrated. That so time is that time is flying, everyone. So we have about fifteen <laughs> minutes. Maybe if we can just use this remaining fifteen minutes, to take the a deeper dive in terms of the, the the research project in terms of how people can get involved, families and young people. Maybe talk about is there. Um, are there office sessions and actually and how long the the, the study is is, is going to will, will continue um and you know persist and is there any cost involved to participate any kind of re financial reward for participation participation so so dr sodolsky and julia kind of walk us through some of those some of those topics as we kind of conclude because we want to this is yeah. so exciting as i think you can sense from reverend clayton and reverend perry that we want people to take advantage of this behavioral therapy for irritability and aggression yeah. Well, Julia has a great way of explaining this uh, to families. So, Julia, can can I ask you to help us yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. And to go back to what Doctor Reverend Doctor Perry was saying before, the process for what it's like for families when they come in. Basically, um, if you feel like your child would be or this study would be a good fit for your family, um, you would give our office a call or send us an email um, indicated that you're interested. Um, and basically what the study consists of is 15 weeks of free psychotherapy. So that's talk therapy that can be done remotely on Zoom or in person here at the Yale Child Study Center. Um, and a lot of families prefer Zoom just because it's more accessible and a lot easier than having to come in person weekly, which is, and both have worked great. Um, with our families. And in addition to those 15 weeks of therapy, um, we also have a few in-person assessment visits at the Yale Child Study Center in our office. And what that looks like is um, two initial two-hour visits um, where we have families come in um, and it can be, usually we have a, the parent and the child, but if um, both parents want to be there, if only one parent wants to be there, anything is totally fine. If it's, if a different guardian wants to bring them, that's also totally fine. Um, and then we, at the first visit, we go over consent forms. So basically talking about what the study is, um, what um, participation looks like. Um, and then we do a few assessments with the, with the kiddos and uh, both parents and children fill out um, self-report questionnaires. So just rating things about like, um, 
do I feel upset today? Or um, do I get anxious? Or do I get upset about these things? Um, and actually, there's no cost to participation. So therapy is completely free. Um, participation in the study is completely free. And actually, we pay you for coming in. And so for each of those assessment visits, we have four total, two at the initial point at the beginning, one at our halfway point after you've started therapy, and then one at the end called our endpoint, um, where we just ask families to fill out some more rating forms so we can see how things are changing over time. Since this is a research study, we want to see how things might be changing over time, see if this therapy is effective. Um, and so for each of those visits where families are filling out forms, doing some assessments with us, uh, families uh, families get $20. And then for each therapy session, um, they get $10. And it's just all paid in cash. And so that's up to $250 for completing the study. And the, the, the number, Julia, and, and, and yeah. Dr. for folks to kind of... Um, so the number uh, to contact uh, to reach out to us is uh, my would be my office phone number. So that's 203-737-7662. Um, that's 203-737-7662. Um, and that's for 15 weeks of um, psychotherapy. So that's talk therapy. Yeah. And for how long are you... Um... Will the, will the study last for another year? Are you mid-phase? What's um, your prognosis? I, th I think we're about halfway through, so we have about two more years left, so still plenty of time. So there's still time. There's yeah, still time. there's still there's plenty still of time, time for there's you to call time. in or send us an email. Okay. Great. So, so, so Reverend Perry, Reverend Clayton, any thoughts? Because, I mean, there are a ton of th questions that come to my mind, but this is just so, so important. Uh, uh, if not, you know, uh, maybe share a little bit about the cognitive. You mentioned therapy, and people hear that term, whether someone thinks I'm crazy or not, but so kind of explain that from a layperson standpoint, uh, the, 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 this particular methodology that this BTIA, the behavioral therapy for irritability and aggression, what, what that methodology is or that uh, uh, academic support paradigm. So, so when we want to change how we feel, oftentimes uh, it, it's good to engage in some behaviors, right? So that let's say, if you are feeling anxious, it's good to go for a walk. Or if you are feeling sad, it's good to do something enjoyable. And uh, if you're feeling frustrated, right? So it's good to do something that will not get you into trouble, right? So mm -hmm. that we're thinking about specific uh, behaviors and specific situations that uh, happened before and after these behaviors, in addition to our thoughts and our emotions. And um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, kind of like an umbrella term, uh, which mm -hmm. refers to a very wide range of uh, various um, types of psychotherapy. And our study is uh, very focused. It's personalized and targeted in a way that we're looking for teenagers with autism. If we were looking for teenagers without autism, our treatment would have been somewhat different, right? If we were looking for adults, it would have been different. If we were looking for school-age children, we would have done things slightly different, right? So it's for teenagers, and um, uh, we address specific symptoms of autism, such as rigidity or social difficulties, to make sure that the strategies that we offer to children match their motivation, their interests, and um, uh, their family and school circumstances. Mm -hmm. So sometimes 
we work with kids who, who recognize their emotions, who recognize that they get frustrated easily, and they can actually think through the situations and prepare themselves and learn strategies such as relaxation or mm. deep breathing. Mm. And sometimes we have teens who are much more impaired, so they might not recognize their own emotions. They might only know that they were upset after they lashed out at a teacher. Mm. So that these are the kids with whom we work on uh, daily schedules, routines, right? So specific situations that they can use as uh, signals for engaging in specific strategy to prevent unfortunate behavior. So I think uh, Reverend Clayton had a question. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're talking about these these children or these teens. Mm -hmm. So the skills that are taught. But there, there are some cases, let, let's say, for instance, the child is in math class and he's having a bad day in math class mm-hmm. or he's having a bad day in church. Mm-hmm. So what's supposed to happen here? <clears throat> if he can't or she can't get themselves together, should the teacher uh, allow the student to, to leave the room and go to a different place or... Oh, how do you handle that? Well, that's a great question. So let's say the child is having a bad day in math class, right? So ideally, we want to take a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months to give this child the, the tools, right, to recognize things about math that make them having a bad day. And if they're having a bad day, that they can tolerate it. Right, mm-hmm. that they don't need to kind of you know get up and go, or they don't need to uh, be rude about it. Right, that it's okay to have a bad day. Like, what do you do when you have a bad day? Right, <laughs> how, how do you get through this day? So that this is the skill that we want to give to a kid, but not the the, the reason autism is a separate disorder it is that not everybody on the spectrum can uptake the skills, right? So sadly, there will be kids who might not be able to learn math or who might not be able to tolerate certain situations. And then we kind of make our best judgment as to what kind of accommodations are needed, right? So is it okay for this kid when they're upset to raise their hand and uh, take a little break and maybe go take a drink of water if they're really upset in the class, right? So that there are uh, accommodations uh, that can take really different forms to make it possible for the kid to get through the day in school, even when they're having a really bad, um, uh, r- really bad experience in a math mm. class. Mm. Mm. So the, this is a combination of helping children learn new things and changing the environment. If, if uh, the, the kids uh, are not... Um, um, making the best use of, of the situations. Yeah, that, uh, mm-hmm. Please, Reverend Perry. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to say, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with the eclectic way that you have integrated the therapy. Uh, Tom and I, when we were younger, we were in a Gestalt class <laughs> that made kind of resemble to me what you, because uh, you, you deal with the feelings, you deal with what's going on inside the person. And I, I, I prefer that over the Freudian, Solomon, and some of the others. And 
I was thinking, however, that, you know, the, the idea of talk time, it seems such an easy uh, avenue for this kind of study, because like I say, once people see sight, they immediately think there's something mentally wrong with the individual that they're going to be corrected. But it's really not that, you know, in, in biblical terms, we call it just making people whole. You know, it's like, how do you heal? How did we be? We were the wounded healers, healing our wounds and healing the wounds of others. So it's it made it more universal and easier to uh, accept. So you know, I'm just I'm just throwing that out at you because I think that you know if I was telling my child you're gonna have some talk time today, and it's gonna be so important, you're gonna love it, rather than saying you're gonna go to psychotherapy, <laughs> strap me down because I'm kicking and fighting. <laughs> I do not want to go to psychotherapy. But if you tell me I'm going to talk time, oh, and the people are going to be so nice, and I'm going to get to share my experiences and feelings, I think that's that might be. So our job is to help you do your job in terms of recruiting, okay? So by flyers, by, um, you know, meeting with our partners in the community through our churches, um, our women's leagues, our missionaries, our um, Christian education people, that's one of the ways we will probably be able to, to give support to this project. And, and we're definitely willing to do that. And, and Julia, that number again for folks to call? Yes, it is 203-737-7662. Excellent. Excellent. Everyone, we have about four more minutes and Harry's going to play the music and that means we'll be kicked off. So let's let's go. Let's let's push the envelope. Uh, I want to throw out the, the term because again, just seeing Julia and, and Dr. Sodolsky in front of me, you've heard this term black rage. Uh, and it seems to me some folks of, of my persuasion, we, we've internalized that term and, and that term sometimes gets manifested. So there, in a general sense, you can make the hypothesis that many black people feel rage often yeah. and try to modulate it or treat it in a variety of ways, legally and sometimes illegally. But I'm just curious if you've thought about the that that phrase, black rage, and particularly since you're dealing with the emotions. And when you mentioned the two-year-old, I'm thinking of parent, a parent that might not be as, might be a young person themselves. I'm, I'm thinking, it's just, I'm just, I wondered if you had any thoughts about whether the societal conditions are uh, increasing people's uh, anxiety and their emotional outbursts and whether that then will manifest, present itself in an autistic frame, framework. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think that it has been um, uh, a difficult time with the pandemic uh, and it has been an eye-opening time for us uh, in, in many ways uh, in, in recognizing black rage and, and outrage uh, that, um, uh, in, individuals are experiencing for all the right reasons. And the question becomes how to channel the, this rage uh, towards uh, uh, positive change. So mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, uh, this is what we uh, try to do. We, we try to uh, help uh, children and, and families to validate emotions. Emotions are real, yeah. right? Yeah. So rage is real. Anger is real, 
and the question is um, uh, how do we help um, you know children and, and teenagers uh, recognize these emotions and uh, use them uh, towards uh, positive uh, goals and productive change. Excellent, excellent, excellent. The, the number again, Julia? Yes, 203-737-7662. Um, because I might modify my birth certificate and see if I can qualify as a... <laughs> oh, <laughs> Any last words, gentlemen, uh, as we proceed? Even Julia, you mentioned the term uh, health disparities. Uh, how does that kind of intersect with what, we, what we're discussing? Yeah, um, I guess quickly, research has been majority white and a lot of autism diagnostics criteria and treatments and interventions are based on primarily white samples. And so I think research um, within communities of color is so important because we want um, communities of color to be involved with the research process, to be able to make interventions culturally adaptive, um, to make sure that there's access across all communities. And, um, and so hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully our study will be a, a resource uh, for this community and other communities in Connecticut um, to receive intervention, uh, to receive uh, therapy when it's been very inaccessible for communities of color. And yeah, Harry, so give, us give, give, give us 30 more seconds because uh, Reverend Perry wants to give a closing word. Yeah, you know, I think that that's also important to notice that you said that you would do some of the diagnostics for some of the individuals who may not have already been previously diagnosed. And I think that's significant to know. That's a plus for people who just want to get that diagnosis in. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Everyone, thank you so much. We, we just we just got, got to do another show, Reverend Perry, Reverend Clayton, and, and bring you guys in. And then this has been so, so helpful and just uh, appreciate your, your passion and your commitment. And uh, let, let's just uh, keep hope alive and, and make it a reality for everyone. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you. I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you're going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah Yeah, this is my road, let's camera action, I'm ready to go Way too long, we faced them storms, now you gon' face the dawn, you waiting for I said from night to dawn, I write my wrongs alone In competition with warnings, ice galore being a quitter, but little, little by little, they joking, telling some riddles. Now I'm in my section, ain't willing to give up. Know you getting knocked down, but you gotta get up. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is.